You're listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Ever try a business that didn't work? Yes. Lawn mowing company when I was like 16. How'd it go? Uh, Well, let me tell you this. I didn't have a pickup truck. Oh, that, that's a bad decision then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what I did, this is... What I was your plan? Uh, to hire people that had pickup trucks. Okay. So I had friends yeah. that had pickup trucks. This is where I, I really, truly learned within a one-week span the pressures of being an entrepreneur. So okay. I hire these guys. All right. We don't have a company, right? We, right. We're knocking on doors. Mm-hmm. So I, I say, hey, come on, let's do this together. You know, it'll be fun. And... um we're going to make a lot of money. We're going to go knock on doors and get people to, you know, hire us to other lawns. I bought the lumber. I bought all the equipment. I bought like the t-shirts for us, the the business cards, the flyers, all that stuff. Okay. One of my friends, Ricky, he brings his truck over. It was a lifted Ford F450. A, a four, a four, Ford 50. 450. I didn't know they made them. I didn't either. I've- okay. And it was olive green. Okay. All right. So we... He, we didn't have a trailer. We just put them in the bed of his truck. All right. Because you only need like two lawnmowers. Yeah. And okay. they, a lot of stuff can fit in an F-450. Yeah. And we're going, we're knocking on doors. We didn't turn that lawnmower on all week because <laughs> nobody hired us. <laughs> okay. At the end of the week, we're sitting in Ricky's truck. It's me, Ricky, my friend Ian, my friend Cameron. And uh, you, had, you had a four guy business and no clients and no money, no yeah. revenue. Okay. All right. And they all turned to me. This is one week. Right. One week. We've not mowed anybody's yard. Okay. And they go, so when are we getting paid? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh man. Uh, yeah. I guess your relationship with this whole ordeal isn't the same as mine. Yeah, they didn't realize they were on full commission on this. Uh- no, I didn't really think it through. Oh. So they quit me as as well. They should. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, what's the funny thing about that? One of the funniest things is as of about a year ago was the last time I will get calls from people asking me if I'll mow their yard. Really? Yes. I got one about, yeah, last spring. Some a dozen years ago. You this was uh, longer than that. Yeah, yeah, forever ago. And but so when when they said I'll take your card and you know if something happens with my guy, they meant it. Yeah, they, they meant that. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> they, and they call me ten years later, going, "Hey, you still mowing yards?" So I had. I but had that a, tells you if you're in the lawnmower business, that should be very discouraging because it's a long was, play. Yeah. Well, and worse than that, it's like there's nothing that they factored in to the decision of whether they're going to hire me <laughs> other than they found a they, business card. They had card. a business card from a dozen years ago. They, it wasn't my charm. Right. Right. Because right. then it would have, then they would have hired me. It wasn't me your then. skill either. It wasn't you, my skill. Because you, you'd mow no, no yards. I, yes. And did not mow any yards. And it wasn't my, it wasn't my pricing. It wasn't anything. They were just like, yeah, we've there, got There's this. a, there's a yeah. low barrier to entry in, low. uh, in that business so we yeah. had a uh, i had a business with my friend gene when we were in college so we were roommates we decided we were going to start this business and we went to the uh, university admissions office or the registrar wh- whoever it was and we were able to buy a list of all the students for like 30 dollars. oh wow yeah okay. i mean they, they wouldn't do that now but we we bought a list of all the students it was printed out and we 
mailed, this was before email, we mailed all these flyers to people, to their parents. And we said we would uh, deliver their kid a birthday cake. Oh, that's uh, fun. Yeah, it was fun. And it, yeah. was a, it was a fun business. The poor decision we had made is we hadn't really figured out the pricing. We'd figured out the price of a cake <laughs> and what profit we wanted from that, but had not priced in the pain in the butt it was to go to find know, a cake Albertsons or whatever, pick yeah. up a cake and then find this student on campus and where they were and track them yeah, down. And, you couldn't just, no, like, you can't, can't leave it at their doorstep. <laughs> right. Yeah. We couldn't get a hold of these people. So it was this <laughs> massive, just, we lost all our money just running around trying to find these students and give them a cake. Oh, <laughs> we shut it down after a while. That's funny. Today, we talked to someone who knows a lot about entrepreneurship. Jason Pfeiffer is the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, author of the book Build for Tomorrow. He's a startup advisor, a host of the podcast Build for Tomorrow and Problem Solvers. LinkedIn named him a top voice in entrepreneurship for 2022. Prior to Entrepreneur Magazine, Jason worked as an editor at Men's Health, Fast Company, Maxim and Boston magazines. And he's written about business and technology for the Washington Post, Slate, and New York Magazine, among others. Today in our conversation with Jason, we talked about deciding to live in authenticity by refusing to be boxed in, developing the skill set of adaptability to effectively navigate change, recognizing the innate specific value that you bring to others, proactively deciding how you'll handle change and experimenting with change to test out results. There's a lot to learn from this episode. Um, There's a lot to learn from Jason and his book. Uh, I can't speak highly enough about that. So stick around. You're going to learn something. I'm Sanger Smith, as always, with my dad, Sean Smith. This is Decidedly. Jason, thanks for being here. You bet. Thanks for having me. I I do have a bone to pick with you a little bit. It's not entirely your fault. It's mostly your fault. Okay. So yesterday you put out an article on Taco Bell. Yes. And then I went to hang out with friends after the gym and we went to this bar. I don't drink, but I do like to hang out with my friends. So I'm sitting here at the bar and these women door dash Taco Bell. And then I couldn't get it out of my head and I had to go to Taco Bell. Last <laughs> night. To to Taco Bell. Oh, well, you know, look, everyone makes their own decisions here. <laughs> it was a great decision until about midday today. Yeah, I can appreciate that. I mean, look, I, I'm, I am just here to report that Taco Bell is a very, very strong franchise. What you do with that information, either uh, in your business or in your personal life, is really up to you. Well, it was a fascinating article about how they've identified their ta- who a Taco Bell person is. Who's a Taco Bell person? Is? I didn't so, see the article. So Taco, yeah. So Taco <laughs> Bell. So the reason that we ran that piece was because we just put out our annual franchise five hundred entrepreneur magazine did, and that is our ranking of the top five hundred franchises uh, in America and globally. And Taco Bell is number one, number one for the third year in a row. And this isn't just like us willy nilly deciding where people go. This is a very sophisticated ranking system where we take in financial data and and marketing strength and franchisee support and so on. Anyway, Taco Bell has just been absolutely killing it. And so they were number one on our list. And as a result of that, we ran a feature about how they have maintained their cultural relevancy. 
and they do this really smart thing that is that they have they define they define their customer by psychographic not by demographic and so they call their customer the cultural rebel and that's really who they think of reaching and how they frame their marketing Oh, that's interesting. I'm going to have to read the article. That's why you don't ever go to Taco Bell. Well, I I guess I'm not in their uh, psychographic. I'm in the middle of reading your book, Build for Tomorrow, Jason. And I I wanted to share with you what a great writer you you are. And then I thought, you know, sort of like telling a basketball player how tall they are. Well, you're really tall. Like you probably (laughs) hear that. You you should be a great writer, editor of Entrepreneur Magazine. You should be a great writer. So. Well, well there's, I there's that confirmation that. I, I, you didn't need. I'm yeah. happy. I'm happy to hear it anyway. I mean, you know, the funny thing about telling somebody that they're tall is that they had nothing to do with that. But you know, telling them that they're a great three point shooter—that's something that they had to work on. So, well, that's that's true. How did you get into that line of work, the, the editing and writing, you know, the type of career? So I started writing for an audience in high school. And at first it was a blog before the word blog existed. And then I was writing for some local music magazines in South Florida, which is where I grew up. And I knew for a long time I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't know what kind of writer. I didn't know what I was good at. I tried a little bit of everything. Turns out I'm a pretty bad novelist. I'm a very bad screenwriter. And journalism just came a little more naturally to me because uh, I'm good at talking to people and turns out that they tell you really interesting things and then it's just your job to make that stuff as relevant as possible to other people. I started out as a community newspaper reporter out of college and then I got into magazines and I bounced around for a while. Um, I decided to be an editor because I was, I, as I was trying to get out of newspapers, I was in my early 20s, I was looking at magazines and I was trying to understand how to break into magazines and magazines very helpfully run what's called a masthead, which is the the list of all the people who work at the magazine. And if you look at those things, what you'll find is that there are very few to zero writers on any staff of a magazine. They're all editors. And so I thought, well, I guess I have to be an editor. And I'll be honest with you, I, I don't want to be an editor. Um, I far prefer to be a writer. But editing is the pathway to having a career in the magazine industry. And so that is how I framed myself. And then I just always thought I will be an editor who writes. I think this is basically what everybody does in their career, which is you figure out what is the price of admission to do the thing that you really love. And then you try to find ways in which paying that price can be satisfying all by itself. Yeah. What rocks do I have to carry to be able to wear the uniform that I really want to be wearing? I think we do that as advisors all the time. There's there's certainly components of being an advisor, being a business owner that are not appealing to me, but having the impact on the client is what's fun. Um, yeah. What was that moment that you had where you realized, holy crap, I'm actually good at writing in journalism and, and I like it? I don't think that there was a particular moment, but I was getting good feedback very early. I mean, I remember even in high school, I would write, I mean, at high school, I was not writing constructive things. I was writing like jokes and making fun of other kids yeah. at school. And, but I was noticing that people were reacting to it. And, you know, it's, it's funny. It's, it's there's a, I, I don't mean to be self aggrandizing here, but I'm still going to quote um, Uncle Ben from Spider Man, right? Which is like the, with great power comes great responsibility. It took me a while to recognize that. 
be having a platform and having other people read your work meant that you had to be really responsible about it. You know, like it's like I started as a snotty blogger in high school and then I was writing for these music magazines and, you know, complimenting some people and kind of tearing other people down. And, um, and it took me a while to realize that the thing that I really liked to do was to find incredibly compelling ways to help others. Uh, you know, like I, I started in news out of college. I wasn't really that interested in being a news reporter. I'm glad people want to do it, but it wasn't for me. And it, it wasn't, it wasn't until I'll be honest. I mean, I, most of my career in, in media, I spent pursuing what I would call kind of wacky stories. Like I was just like, I was really drawn to things that seemed kind of strange, but that also contained a kernel of useful insight about the world. Um, and I bounced around everywhere. I was at Boston magazine. I was at men's health fast yeah. company. So, um, when I got to entrepreneur and I started to talk to entrepreneurs and I discovered that they are this incredibly earnest group of people who are carrying a lot, just emotionally carrying a lot. What they do is very hard. It, it one inspired me because I realized that I like them had been a risk taker throughout my career and had set out to achieve a, a vision of something, even though that vision would have to get revised over and yeah. over again. So I really related to it. It also changed the way that I think about myself. I stopped really thinking of myself over the years that I've been an entrepreneur, which is I started in 2015 as a media guy. And I started to think of myself as an entrepreneur because I, um, well, I've sort of just evolved into that. I, I have my own media company. I, I have my own revenue generating products. I do a lot of startup advising now. I have a, a pretty thriving speaking business. And so I've I've followed some of this path while also maintaining a you know a, a strong footing in the media space. Um and also that I just love how open and vulnerable entrepreneurs are willing to be if they feel like it's going to be well received, because they understand that the great challenge of their journey is the loneliness that can come with it. And yeah. that by being open to others about that, they start to create the kind of community that they need to actually be resilient. And so I like to be a part of that community and I, and I like to be supportive of those people. And so the, the best stories that I, I write now are really the ones in which someone was just willing to be brutally, brutally honest about what challenge they faced because in understanding how they thought through their problem, lots of other people can learn how to face their own challenges as well. The I, I think entrepreneurs as a whole are some of the most authentic people that I know. Yeah. And, and as a group are, are the, one of the most authentic groups of people that I know. For that re for a lot of reasons that you already said, um, but also because we have the we we don't have we don't get told what to do, right? So we yeah. don't box we don't get boxed in by other people. Um, that has its own consequences <laughs> in some ways, right? Sure. You you don't have anybody checking you. A lot of times you kind of get out there on the wings. Yeah. But writers and entrepreneurs definitely have uh, something in common. Um, even if you don't have the speaking business, even if you don't have the media company. You, you have to stand alone on an island on your ideas, right? Yeah. If you're going to go publish a book under your name, 
you're doing something similar to what an entrepreneur would do to say, I think this idea or I think this solution, I think that I have a solution to a problem that others face and I'm going to put it out there and I'm pretty confident somebody's going to pick it up. And it's just you, right? Yeah. You're not following orders. It's not a script. It's not a format of uh, little stories about Jason's life that you shared that fit within a box that someone constructed for you. Mm-hmm. Um, you you went out there and, and made it happen. That's a that's entrepreneurial for sure. Um, what with the book Build for Tomorrow, um, it spoke to Sean and I a lot as far as you know. It's something that it's an, an idea that I think we talk about far less eloquently between the two of us. You know, change before you have to. Mm. What was the inspiration for you in creating this book? Oh, the book. Um, so first, that was a very smart connection between entrepreneurs and writers. I'll add another one, which is that both of them would say of their chosen career path, if you could do anything else, go do that because it's easier. Uh, but the reason that you take this difficult path is because you feel like there's just nothing else that would Have satisfy to. you. There's really no yeah. other option. Um, why did I write the book? I wrote the book because I had realized over the many years that I've been writing about and spending all my time with entrepreneurs that the most successful entrepreneurs were the most adaptable. And I was very curious how that was happening and how people developed the skill set of adaptability. And the pandemic was a really perfect way to learn that because you got to see everybody go through the same change at the exact same time and then radically diverge. And so I I thought, you know, I, I've gathered all of these insights about how people are doing this. And I feel like if I could put them together into a coherent, compelling book, that I would have a guide that people need now because we are in a moment of rapid and constant transition. And this couldn't be a more relevant subject. And I just happened to be sitting in the right seat at the right time to gather the insights that I think people need. And so the book really came out of that. The focus is around change, obviously. Mm-hmm. And you know, some businesses decide not to change or by default don't change. And some yeah. businesses make a decision to change. Was there anything you noticed in the decision-making process that helped companies be more adaptable to an accepting of change and moving forward versus those that didn't? Well, it's funny because change is not always something that you opt into. Sometimes it's something that's forced upon you. And then it becomes a question not of whether you want to change, but rather whether you're able to adapt to it or if you're going to fall apart. And the single most important thing I think that anybody, whether they're proactive about this or they're reactive about it, that they can do to set themselves up for future success is to just have a really crystal clear understanding of what kind of value they have to others, regardless of the specific product or service that they produce, or if you're an individual, the role that you occupy. Because it's the difference between a brand called Foodsters, which makes uh, baking mixes and other sweets, uh, saying, we are a baking mix company, and them saying, we bring joy to people with upgraded sweet baked goods. 
uh, which is a real world example. I was talking to Greg Fleischman, the CEO of Foodsters at a time where the company was going through a big change. And that's what he told me. He said that the way that they stayed focused on the mission was understanding that they bring joy to people with upgraded sweet baked goods. Notice that. They bring joy to people with upgraded sweet baked goods does not mean we make baking mixes and we sell them in Whole Foods, uh, right? Like it, it doesn't mean we um, we are a cookie company. Like it, it doesn't really matter what the hell the product is so long as you know what your purpose is. And I think that sometimes brands or individual entrepreneurs have thought in advance of what their real value is to others. And sometimes they figure it out along the way as they are trying everything they can to stay relevant and eventually they realize you know look look I'm not in the uh you know I don't know whatever I'm not in the financial management business I'm in the trust business uh and you know and so the more that I can lean into that and make sure that I'm relevant to my customer regardless of what it is that they need from me right now the more I will be able to be relevant to them in the future Kind of going back to the why, why are you in business? And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think you gave an example in the book about uh, Blockbuster. Yep. And, you know, maybe they thought they were in the video rental business, but perhaps not. I was telling Sanger, and I wanted to wait and let you tell about that the Blockbuster story. Can you share that story a little bit? Oh, sure. Well, you know, what I point out is in the book is that the story that we often tell about Blockbuster is that they just didn't see it coming. And, you know, they didn't see the change in consumer desire coming, but they also didn't see Netflix coming. But you know, that's not that's not true. Uh there's a lot of very smart people who ran Blockbuster. They weren't idiots. The problem was that they did see it coming and they couldn't do anything about it. Because to do something about it would have meant to make radical change to the business functionally while the still while the business was still doing well. Uh, because if you wait until the pain is so great from something not working anymore, or things changing, then you're going to scramble and you're going to make very bad decisions. I mean, I, you can see a lot of industries that are scrambling and making very bad decisions. Yes. And, um, <laughs> a lot and, of organizations too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And so what I, what I think, you know, what Blockbuster to me represents is that for a company to, not just understand its value, but be able to really live that value and and change means that you need to have buy-in top to bottom, leadership all the way down about what your core value is and how your consumer may want that tomorrow. The, the, the challenge at Blockbuster was that they understood uh, a digital shift was coming, but they couldn't get their kind of corporate, uh, uh, you know, ownership, which was at first Viacom, and then it became Carl Icahn, basically, who took a significant uh, share of the company, to believe in that. And what they wanted to do was hold firm to the structure that the company already was, rather than say, you know what, we're going to have to sacrifice some value in the short term here to create long term value. And that means that we all need to structure our own businesses and our own lives in a way in which we're not making that mistake, where we're alert to new changes and we're incentivizing the people who we work with to recognize and react to those changes and start to execute on new ideas so that we are set up for what people need next. Yeah. Yeah. I had a, uh, had a client who, who worked at Blockbuster, higher in the organization. 
And I remember in the sort of the waning days, uh, he was telling me, oh, yeah, we're working on a program right now. And the program basically was fiddling at the edges Mm -hmm. with late fees. And even at the time, this is before they went south. I was like, wow, that's really not, you're not really, you're not really changing anything. Yeah. That's not significant. You're not making any big decisions. It makes all the there. sense in the world, though. If you, if you know what your purpose is, then what you do almost doesn't matter at all. What you sell doesn't really matter at all. If you have no purpose. If it's aligned with that purpose. Yeah. Well, yeah, of course it will be, yeah. right? Yeah. Assuming that if you, if you know what it is and also align you know, aim at it, what you mm-hmm. sell will become aligned with that, in which case right. who cares what you're selling. Yeah. But if you don't have a purpose, then your purpose by de facto is what you're selling. Yeah. Right. You have no purpose other than to sell tires, right? You're a tire company, you sell tires. And if all of a sudden, you know, we have hover cars in 10 years, you ain't, you ain't got tires anymore. So yeah. you don't have a company anymore. And that's Blockbuster. That was a position that I was in with some business partners of mine who could always wanted to change. Like we would have quarterly conversations about our purpose and our values or the mission statement or whatever. Mm-hmm. Okay, guys, if this, if, this, it's if we not, don't know this, we don't know anything. Right? It's yeah. not that it's, it's not that we just didn't look at the right thesaurus and pick the right fancy adjective. It's that clearly there's something missing. Yeah. Um, with with what we're actually aiming at and so then we would focus on things that didn't matter you know focus on little tweaks in the operations department or focus on little tweaks in the finance department or focus in in other areas of the business that ultimately weren't going to have a true impactful change because we never knew what we were doing so i could see that and go well we're going to get stuck behind the curve uh when the industry is changing i have to have to make a move so in your experience what can people do on a practical basis once they've recognized hey i i want to change i want to change ahead of the time where i'm forced to change and i'm panicking at which point i may not be able to change anyway i want to change soon what are the things that they've got to do in that moment or decide to do it's time to start making some educated calculations and testing things the you know, it's fine. I mean, I'll, let me tell you this on a personal level, and then I'll, we'll expand it to business. Personal, which is that I was talking to Katie Milkman, who's a professor at Wharton, who wrote a book called How to Change and studies how people make these that's kinds of decisions. Book. Yeah, she's got great the uh, Choiceology podcast, I believe. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I said, what's the number one, like, first thing that people should think to do when they're kind of considering a change? And she says, she said, she says this is going to sound kind of stupid and simple, but the answer is experiment. Um, because we often think that something new that we're going to that we that we do is a full time commitment, um, and as a result, because we're afraid of fully committing to something that we don't know all that well, we just don't make the decision at all. But what if everything just becomes an experiment, and we run it for some amount of time, and we see if it works or not? And if it doesn't, well, that's fine because not all experiments are supposed to work. And I think that there has to be some kind of version of that attitude that takes place inside of an organization too, which is to say, let's start with what our consumer needs. Let's let's understand them really well. I'm a big believer in consumer insights research and make sure we understand who our best customers are and what they get from us and what they don't get from us and what they need from us and what they are frustrated by from us. And then let's start to run some experiments and see if we can 
gain traction, delivering value in different ways. Because what you'll learn is that there may actually be a much better way to serve your customer. There might may be a much better way to do business than you had believed. And look, you don't need to start lurching from one business model to the next in order to figure that out. But you do need to create some kind of space where the people in your organization feel incentivized to just try things and that the trying by itself is success. And I, you know, you talk to people who study entrepreneurship and how it is that you can get people inside of an organization to feel like entrepreneurs and create new ideas and feel empowered to try them. And the very first thing that you need to do is you need to create a culture in which if they try something and it doesn't work out, nobody thinks they wasted their time. Because yeah. if they do, they are if they do think that it was a waste of time or if they if they, they if they're gonna be again. chastised that it didn't work, they're never ever gonna try something. Ever. Yeah. So create that culture in which simply trying something out is by itself value. And it's great. You found an answer. The answer is no, it doesn't work. Yeah, the answer is that's great. <laughs> but that's, that's a, a good answer. Then we don't have answer. to think about it anymore. We don't have to brainstorm it anymore. We don't have to run cost analysis. It doesn't even work. Who cares right. what it costs? All right, that's great. I mean, you know, famously or perhaps fictitiously, you know, because quotes quotes from famous people are often just totally made up. But the story is that, you know, Thomas Edison was working on the light bulb for years and years and wasn't getting anywhere. And somebody said, aren't you wasting your time? And he said, no, I figured out 10,000 ways it doesn't work. And that's, you know, that, that whether that's true or not, it's a great, it's a great mindset. That's a beautiful mindset. Yeah. I, I don't know who to attribute this quote to, um, but I heard someone say one time, if I wanted to find the correct answer, I would try infinitely until I found the right answer. I would try every possible solution until I found the right answer. Now, I cannot do that in my business. I can't try infinitely, mm-hmm. but I might as well try something. <laughs> yeah. like I, I might as well. I just got to start at one, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and that, that's a challenge. Like It's so much easier said than done, but there's, I think, a lot of emotional challenges in trying, right? There's the, well, the entrepreneur who might be uh, slightly unwilling to hand over the reins in this department to um, to another person. It might be someone who's, um, maybe I don't want to try because I don't want to fail, even though you know I know that it's going to be encouraged that I found the wrong answer or found a way that it doesn't work. I, I'm still going to feel like I failed. There's a lot of things, but to to get to that point where we feel comfortable trying, I think is an aim for sure. Yeah. You have to start thinking of trying as information gathering. Failure is just data. Because, I mean, I've talked to so many people who felt stuck in their careers and you know they talk through why this doesn't work and that doesn't work or that, that's not a good idea. And they don't know where to go next. And, and I, you know, I tell them, look, the problem that you have is that, um, is that you don't have enough information to figure out what your next step is. And they're like, yes. Mm-hmm. And then I say, well, then you need more information. And the only yeah. way you're going to get that information is by trying something. Like there's no, yeah. you, you cannot make any great decision based on the information you currently have. It's the reason you're stuck. So right. what you need now is just simply more information. It's got to come from somewhere. And the only place it's going to come from is by trying something and seeing if it works. And even if it doesn't, it will inform something next. Trying is the uh, the best way to get information. We, we got to get you out of here because you have a hard stop. Um, 
I love to try new things. Growing up in Sean Smith's household, he said, Smith, try new things. And that was a mantra. Uh, you know, he didn't mean it in a business sense. He meant it more like you're going to eat sushi because we're at the sushi restaurant. Uh-huh. Uh, so you're going to try new things. What's one thing in your life that people should try? Uh, oh, it's one thing that people should try. They should try uh, asking for favors more. That's something I learned in the last six months. My book came out in September. I never ask people for favors. I I find it deeply uncomfortable. But I asked everybody, everybody I knew for some kind of support, whether it was, you know, hey, you've got a very large platform. Will you have me on it or will you share the thing or share the book? Or will you just buy it or tell somebody about it or whatever? And you know what I found is that people people did it. And it made me feel indebted to them, which is wonderful. That's a that's a that's a connection strengthener, right? That's how communities are formed. Um, but also, a lot of people. So I didn't expect this. A lot of people said, "Well, finally, I get to do something for you because because <laughs> I, I had done a lot for other people, yeah. and I never asked for favors, so they never had an opportunity to repay me, and they really wanted to, and I wasn't giving them that opportunity, which actually made them feel bad. So it was not me not asking for favors because I didn't want to impose on someone was actually its own form of imposition, which I hadn't anticipated. So That's interesting. Uh, so my, I guess uh, I, I try asking for some favors, but you know, don't be obnoxious about it and make very sure that you are returning them. Yeah, you just it, don't ask me. It'll be hard for you not to be obnoxious Just don't ask about me it, for so. Don't ask me for uh, anything. Hey, Jason, feel free to ask us for a favor anytime. It's been a fa- uh, you've done us a favor by being on the show. We appreciate, oh, I appreciate it. That. Uh, tell people how, where they can uh, get your book. Oh, well, thanks. So I, I appreciate you guys having me on. Uh, so the book, again, is called Build for Tomorrow, and you can get it wherever you get books in any form, uh, whether that's hardcover or audiobook or ebook, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local bookstore, your airport, whatever. And then you can find me and more information about me and how to get in touch and my newsletter and all the stuff at jasonpfeiffer.com. Perfect. Hey, thanks so much, Jason. Jason, thank thanks you. a lot. My takeaway from our discussion with Jason was one that, that we know, but it's good to get it reinforced. And that is when you're making a decision is to reflect on the why you're in that position to make that decision. Why are you in this business? Why are you moving forward into buying a house or relationship or whatever it is? And one of the things that struck me is there's a uh, quote that he has in the book that it's, it's not what you do, it's why you do it. I think that really underscores the importance of being able to reflect on the why when you're making a key decision. My takeaway is that if I wanted to have all of the information necessary to make the best choice, the best way to get it is to try. You know, failure is data, I think is what Jason said. Trying and failing is not really failing, that's succeeding because failure has given me data. I know, and now I have data that's reliable that tells me what won't work. Uh, So creating a culture where failed trials are encouraged instead of considered a waste of time is is good for my business. Uh, It's good for my own personal life, and I should do more of that. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. Make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly.
Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.